Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Catherine Whitaker, originally from Putney, but currently at the Foro Italico in Rome. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. So yes, for the first time ever, we have Catherine Whitaker introducing the Tennis Podcast. You might wonder what on earth is going on. Uh, we haven't completely run out of intros. Uh, Catherine, however, has decided to take part in the intros for the first time ever because I requested that not only she but every single person in our database do so when I sent out what was meant to be an email to about 60 people, and it was received by several thousand. Um, and I was requesting, Matt, uh, that uh, those that have paid to become an intro friend of the Tennis Podcast and therefore be able to, uh, to yes, introduce a show like Catherine did just then, um, I asked them to send theirs in. It turns out I sent it to rather too many people. <laughs> so uh, that's that's what's been happening today. And it, I mean, let's be honest, Matt. It's 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 been a bit of a day generally, hasn't it? And we've had the news that Rafael Nadal isn't playing Roland Garros. I'm not trying to put those two things side by side because that's rather a more important news story. Um, and not only is he not playing Roland Garros this year, he's sadly at the end stages of his career uh we're going to talk about that in length at length in this podcast we'll get Catherine's take from Rome but I mean it has been a bit of a day it has yes the uh intro saga has has provided some much needed levity to the day and uh yeah it was a it was a very weird hour where my my phone was blowing up with lots of people emailing us. And David, you were on a call at the time, weren't you? So you were unaware of your mishap for about 45 minutes or so. And then uh, got a text from you when you'd finished that meeting. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those were my precise words. And uh, I very quickly sent a, an apology and a clarification mm. uh, yeah. as to what I'd done. Yes, you did. You did very good recovery work. But yes, no, it has been it has been a pretty heavy day, hasn't it? I think we've mm. we've sort of had some practice over the last year or so with, with with days like this, with Serena first and Federer shortly after. But in a way, those were more sudden. They sort of dropped their news suddenly, didn't they, on social media or Vogue magazine for Serena, whereas we were braced for today because we had 24 hours warning or so that that there was going to be a press conference and 
yeah, I sort of had a pang of anxiety about me sort of all day leading up to that press conference and and what would Nadal's news be? We we assumed it wasn't going to be particularly positive and and that was the case. So yeah, a sad day, a heavy day, the sort of once again an end of an era feeling to it. Um just a lot of emotions. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll be talking about those emotions. We'll be going through what Nadal had to say today and and talking more generally about this, what this means for the sport, what it means for him, how we'll remember him. And, and we'll hear from Catherine Whitaker, who's not with us right now because uh, she's over in Rome covering uh, the event for, for Amazon Prime. Um, but we, we have got uh, Catherine's views on the subject. So we'll be playing those for you in just a moment. Um, Matt referenced Roger Federer's retirement at the end of last year and his final event being the Labour Cup. And... Uh, just before we get underway to talk about Rafael Nadal, I mean, one photo I dug up um, today, my mind instantly went to was of Nadal and Federer sitting side by side at the Lever Cup. Um, and it was really, you know, it, it did bring it all back to me. Uh, just just what a what a moment that was and how important that felt. Um, just on the subject of uh, of Lever Cup, before we get underway with the the full breakdown of what Nadal said today uh should remind you that this edition of the tennis podcast is brought to you in association with on location the premium hospitality and experience provider and on location provides packages via steve fergal's international tennis tours to all of the four grand slam tournaments including the u.s open which is on sale now and this was my segue, folks. They have brilliant packages to the Labour Cup in Vancouver, which takes place the 22nd to the 24th of September. We can offer tennis podcast listeners a 5% discount to the Labour Cup weekend. So go to tours4tennis.com forward slash podcast. That's tours, the number four, tennis.com forward slash podcast. Click the Labour Cup discount section and enter the code Vancouver, V-A-N. C-O-U-V-E-R when you purchase an eligible 2023 Labour Cup travel package on the official website of On Location. That's onlocationexp.com. You've got until the 31st of May to do so at 11.59 Eastern Time. The discount does not apply to the Rocky Mountaineer train train tour package for the Labour Cup. You can only use the code Vancouver once and it can't be used with other discounts or on previous purchases. You'll see your savings when you add an eligible package to your cart and use the code at checkout. This offer does not apply to hotel packages or other events from Steve Fergal's International Tennis Tours or on location and its subsidiaries. If you have any questions, email info at toursfortennis.com see onlocationexp.com's purchase policy for more information so matt it was four o'clock local time in spain it was the rafael nadal academy that this press conference was being staged at nadal walked in in white t-shirt he sat on a single stool there was nobody with him uh, other than the assembled media and the audience that were there but the moment he walked out and bear in mind we did not know at this point why Nadal was holding a press conference. We'd heard from his PR manager yesterday that he would be giving a press conference and it said only at that time would he reveal his plans for Roland Garros. And we had had some some stories. There'd been a story in the in the Spanish media that, that he wasn't going to play Roland Garros, but this 
message came through from his team just moments afterwards saying, hold your horses, he's going to give a press conference. It's going to be tomorrow at 4 uh, local time at, at his academy and we found out today that it would be live streamed so we were able to watch it um, but the thing that immediately took my eye was that Carlos Moyer his longtime coach and Carlos Costa his manager from for, for many years both sat right on the front row uh, looking at Nadal and I did think at that point okay this feels more than just withdrawing from a tournament. Um, even though withdrawing from running Garros is a big deal, this felt big. Um, and I was very fortunate at that point that I was in touch with Matt because, unsurprisingly, Rafa started speaking in Spanish immediately and I did not understand a word. And I was in charge of our Twitter account trying to relay the news to our followers, but Matt was able to help me. And Matt, what did he have to say? Well, he was able to help me as well because, yes, I I do speak Spanish, but trying to tune into that Spanish and translate it to you via WhatsApp uh, is, is not always that easy. And he sort of gave quite a handy, too-long-didn't-read summary notes at the end of his first speech where he sort of summed up his three main points. And, and those were, number one, he's out of Roland Garros, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, he used the word impossible, impossible for him to go to Roland Garros. He made another point that he's stopping all tennis activity, training, practice for a few months. Uh, he's not able to say whether that's one and a half months or four months, but it's a period of inactivity in order to hopefully recover and get over this hip injury that he's had all year since he sustained it at the Australian Open uh, because the methods that he's been that he's been using just just haven't been working it, that injury has not healed um, one idea that he has is to maybe try and return at the Davis Cup at the end of the year was something that he mentioned but it was you know by no means sure at this stage because he simply doesn't know how this period of inactivity will will help him. And then the third point is that his his plan is for 2024 to be his last year on tour. Uh, if he if he is able to make a recovery from the injury and get out and be competitive again, he plans to do that in 2024. And for that most likely to be it. Uh, so, you know, three three big points there, three big announcements. Uh, he sort of expanded on, on some of those points and fleshed out some of his answers in Spanish, in Catalan and in English. It was about a 45-minute press conference in total. And one thing that he really emphasized was just how much he's been struggling since the pandemic. You know, how, how difficult it's been for him to get his body ready uh, to be fit repeatedly since the pandemic. And I think as much as this is a physical break that he's taking now, and he said that it's been, you know, it's been a decision that's been made for him by his body, you know, I think it's also a bit of an emotional break because he, he said it's been really tough mentally for him, for those around him, his friends, his family, his, his coaches, 
to be constantly working so, so hard and just keep having these setbacks. And it's sort of not, it's not fair on him. It's not fair on all those people around him. And he's just reached the point where he needs to stop. He, he can't take it anymore, both physically and I think emotionally. Um, he said that if you're winning, all that sacrifice doesn't matter quite so much because there's some reward at the end of it. But there's just been there's just been no reward over the last year or so as he's as he's tried to get back on court so desperately. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting point. And then he was asked towards the end of the press conference why he wants to come back at all. You know, why not just stop now? And I think his answer to that was so insightful into into him as a person. And he said, first of all, and he was a little bit shy about saying this. He, he, he sort of didn't, he didn't really want to say it because it maybe made him sound a bit big headed. I don't think it does, but he said he doesn't feel like he deserves to finish his career just giving a press conference. He said he feels like he's worked too hard. He deserves so much more than that. And he wants to get out on court and have a, have a proper send off that sort of, is more fitting for his career. And he said, it's always worth giving a little bit more. And he said that has been his philosophy throughout his career, his sort of life philosophy. That's his approach to everything. That's his approach to this. And he said, if his body allows it, he has some faith that his tennis will make it worth the effort because he thinks he's still playing great, great tennis. It's just his body isn't able to take him out onto the match court. So a fascinating press conference. I thought he I thought he handled it brilliantly. There were some sort of heartbreaking lines in there, but also some sort of heartwarming ones as well in in true Nadal style, I suppose. Yeah, it must be it must be hard for him to take as I sensed witnessing the reaction to his announcement out there on social media and and in people I spoke to it's it's hard for people to take. I think just the same way as it was when Serena Williams announced she was going to stop and Roger Federer. These are people that have been ever present in the lives of so many people. Um, Matt and I will we'll talk some more about Rafael Nadal's announcement in a, a few minutes, but let's hear from, from Catherine out in Rome, first of all. She's there. She's on site. We can get a little bit of insight as to what it's been like there for her. Um, and also hear her reaction to this news from Rafael Nadal. Here's Catherine. Hello, Tennis Podcast team and listeners. You find me at the Foro Italico, where I'm just walking past the statues of the Pietrangeli Court uh, on my way uh, from recording highlights links to the green room. Um, had to record two versions of the goodbye link uh, to cover us in the event of rain, because that has been a major feature of my time here in Rome so far. It has been so wet <laughs> and so cold, um, and undoubtedly those factors uh, have had a big impact on the tennis that we've seen so far. And I found that pretty interesting, actually, seeing how players can adapt technically and mentally I think it's quite a challenge to go out there knowing it's just going to be a slog you know to try and hit through the court in these conditions is is a real real challenge I think and you need to be pretty agricultural to be able to do that um 
So, yeah, I found it very interesting what we've seen so far. Obviously, today for us on air, aside from the, the matches that we've been covering, has been very much dominated by the Nadal news, which I'm quite sure you two are covering um, in brilliant detail. Um, obviously, we, you know, we had the tip-off yesterday that he was calling a press conference today. So that, you know, it wasn't certain what he'd be announcing, but it was pretty clear to me, I think, that, you know, 99% chance he'd at the very least be announcing that he wouldn't be playing Roland Garros. So I had that time to prepare. Um, but nonetheless, I, I kind of feel two things. I feel surprised at the announcement of his intention to play a goodbye year on tour or his hopes to play a goodbye year on tour. I'm not sure I necessarily expected that from him. We've only really seen one man kind of officially do that, and that was Stefan Edberg, and he said he ended up regretting it, didn't he? Um, and I'm sure, given that that happened in the 90s, David will give us all the background on that. But, um, yeah, I, I do find it very interesting that, that Nadal has signalled his intention to do that. I do wonder if his plan to do that is contingent on him being competitive um, I find it hard to see him doing that if he's just rocking up and um, and waving and losing in the first round at places um, I just don't think it's his in his DNA to, to tolerate tolerate that just as just as it wasn't in his DNA to to play Roland Garros this year just to play Roland Garros he he obviously became aware that he wasn't able to be competitive um, I do think that line he gave about players coming and going but tournaments staying forever is just the most Nadal line ever. I think it was his version of tennis, I love you and I'll never leave you. You know, it was his way of saying, as he has done at so many pivotal moments in in the sport's recent past, that, you know, OK, I've been a big part of this sport for for a little while and I've contributed to its history but no player is bigger than the sport um, and kind of you know men's tennis will be just fine kind of thing um, and Nadal's always been great at that perspective um, so yeah it's it's emotional it's emotional just as Federer's retirement was um, because it's it's a marker of time passing, isn't it? Because Nadal has been a feature of almost all of my tennis watching life. Um, so, you know, I do feel like the end of an era cliches really do, really do apply. Um, and he is probably, I think, in terms of in in person tennis watching experiences, he's given me more than than anybody else. You know, I. I I, as discussed on a recent Friends pod, I wasn't present for, for any of Andy Murray's um, Grand Slam victories or for Emirati Kanu's at the US Open, but I was there for Nadal winning the Australian Open last year and then winning the French last year and um, beating Daniel Medvedev in the 2019 US Open final. You know, I feel like he has given me so much as a tennis fan and viewer. Um, and for that reason, I feel quite sentimental and sad and emotional. Um, you know, I'm ready for it. 
I certainly am not somebody that wants to see Rafael Nadal struggling and not being competitive at Roland Garros. So there's an element of relief there. But I will miss him so much. I really will. I think I feel more sort of real sadness than I did when when Federer had retired because I I felt like Federer had ceased to be a, a factor in conversation somewhat before his actual retirement whereas I feel Nadal has been you know up until Australia this year he was right at the top of our conversation lists in terms of mixes um, but I wonder if Nadal will ever be in a mix again um, and on that melancholy note I will hand back to you both and I will look forward to joining you uh, on the show on Sunday to wrap up the week in Rome, which I hope weather-wise is uh, going to take a turn for the better. That is a sobering thought, isn't it? That Rafael Nadal may never be part of what we call the mix at a tennis tournament. And let's be honest, he was in the mix for any tennis tournament that he entered for the last 18 years, something like that. And it's a little bit like when we were covering the life and career of Nick Boloteri uh, last week for Friends of the Tennis podcast, where even though I met him for the first time in his 80s and he died aged, I think, 91, it felt like he would go on forever. It felt like he would never run out of gas. Um, And in terms of their careers... Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Serena Williams, you kind of, even though you know, logically speaking, of course they have to stop playing tennis one day. They can't play this level. They can't play professionally. I mean, you know, sometimes I look at Nadal walk around and I think, I hope in 20 years' time you're able to do social tennis because he's put his body through so much over the years. But even though you know that logic, it's it's really hard to to grasp that, kind of this is it maybe he could get that one more year but basically this is it yeah I think it's going to be bizarre having a Roland Garros without Rafael Nadal I mean I I literally do not know Roland Garros without Rafael Nadal that will be true for a lot of people um yeah our our friend Charlie Ecrochet said that Nadal playing and winning Roland Garros has been the axis on which the tennis world turns were his words. And I think I think that sums it up perfectly. There's just been this continuity, this grounding, this familiarity about Nadal at Roland Garros. And he's just been he's just been a universal law there, I suppose, of tennis. He will show up at Roland Garros and he will most likely win the thing. And we're gonna be in Paris in a week's time and Rafael Nadal's not gonna be there. Be like but like going to Paris and the Arc de Triomphe not being there, it's, 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 it's going to be very, very strange, I think, not to not to hear the on-court announcer listing out all of those Roland Garros titles, which is such a favourite moment of of every season. And yeah, I mean, the last time Nadal missed Roland Garros was 2004, and that was because of a, a foot injury. So there's kind of a sort of full circle moment that here he is again having having to miss it because of his body, I think probably more than any of the all-time greats, Nadal's 
you know, one of Nadal's biggest opponent, maybe his biggest, has always sort of been his own body. And I think he's won that battle. He's gone on a lot longer than anyone anyone probably ever thought. And yet here we are, and he is sort of announcing the end. So yeah, there's the there's the short term contemplating just the next month or so without Nadal at Roland Garros. And then there's the long term, what will this farewell tour be like? I'm not sure not sure I'm emotionally ready after after one event of Serena and or two events of Serena and one event of Federer last year. It was it was a lot to take. If we're getting that every single event next year, it's it's gonna be a lot. Uh and yeah, then of course there's there's two trips to Roland Garros next year because the Olympics are also at Roland Garros, which adds an extra element of intrigue, I suppose, to to next year. Uh, but yeah, it, you're right. There have been such integral parts of our lives. You, it's very hard to to contemplate them not being around, and and Nadal joining Serena and Federer in retirement soon is is it's just a sad sad thing to think about. Mm. Yeah, as inevitable as it is, it's always going to be sad. Um, he, uh, he he explained himself very well as to why he's going to go on this farewell tour. But as Catherine alluded to, I do have experience of watching another incredibly popular sports person in Stefan Edberg going on one of those tours in 1996 when he finished his playing career. And every week that he played tennis, there was a presentation to him. There was... Uh, you know, people wanted to show him how much they loved him. And, and it was a very understated thing by comparison with Edberg. Everybody loved him, but it was still nothing like it will be with Nadal. Nothing like. And uh, if he were to be able to play a proper full year of some 10 or 15 tournaments even, he is going to be exhausted by that, I think, because... That's that's what Edberg said he was, you know, and and actually when I had a chance to interview Stefan Edberg back in 2020 when we were in the middle of the pandemic and and doing all of our tennis relived shows the 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 the, the sort of original ones and uh, and he told me if he if he was advising Roger Federer who was the next player we expected to retire whether to do a farewell tour or not he would advise him not to. And and I found that very interesting at the time. And look, it, it's horses for courses. You do what you what you think is right for you, and there's no there's no right or wrong when it comes to retirement. And all I hope is that Nadal gets his chance, gets his chance to get out there on the court again, but not just for a farewell tour. I want him to be competitive. I want him to to be able to play the greatest hits a little bit out there and and show what he was all about for all those years because there was a a frisson when he walked out onto the court there was an electricity youth i mean i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it just saying those words he gives me goosebumps when he walks out onto a stadium court and um and waves with one hand and then raises his racket with the other um to the crowd there's, there was nothing like it, and I, and I hate saying that in a in the past tense, but at the moment it feels like the past tense. I really hope he gets one more chance, at least one more chance on a big stage to come out and be Rafael Nadal again. 
um, and then to to unleash that game of his, which which improved so much over the years, didn't it? Because you know you think of the the bulging biceps and the the calf length trousers and the the whipped forehands and hooking them cross court and thrashing them down the line and and then the rest of the stuff that he added to his game over the years it was it really was something to to witness in its entirety to think about where he came from as a great player as a truly great player even at the start because of his athleticism and his tenacity but then the the individual elements that he added i want to see them all again man <laughs> Yeah, well, for the time being, I will point you in the direction of YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we'll just have to cross our fingers for 2024, as you say. Yeah, and I think I think you've mentioned it there. Catherine mentioned it in, in her voice note. In-person Nadal experiences, I think, were probably the most impactful i suppose the the energy in the stadium changed when he when he took to the court you you felt the fizz and the power on his shots i think in the stadium in in a way that maybe didn't always come through on on tv and yeah i mean i personally i don't know if i would be into tennis if it wasn't for rafael nadal i, I might have found the sport some other way but i know for sure that I found it because of Rafael Nadal. And I, I wore three-quarter length trousers the first time I ever went to Wimbledon. You know, Nadal, Nadal was really my guy. And it went when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old, I just thought he was the coolest. And then to now be reporting on the sport and having, you know, witnessed some epic moments from Nadal as recently as last year, you know, the miracle in, in Melbourne when he won that Australian Open title will will always stay with me and and by that point there was there was this fragility to him you know we we sort of knew he was he was hanging on he was sort of fighting his own body and yet he still came out and played the most ferocious tennis with those added layers that you spoke about of the sort of the way he developed his game and so intelligently and yeah he he was he was he was the king of clay, but also he won, you know, so many titles on hardcore and he adapted his game to grass as well. He was he's he's a true, true great. And uh, I really, really hope, as you said, that that we get to see some of that magic again next year. Mm. I loved that ambition that he had to improve, to mm. act, to be to be everything on a tennis court and not to just be the king of clay. I mean, and this is a guy who won 14 French <laughs> Opens. And look, he may still, he may still next year win a 15th. Well, who knows? Well, that's it. He has at least for this year made us avoid that awkward question of, is Nadal the favourite for Roland Garros, even though he's, he's, <laughs> he's not had any matches in the last five months? But I... I feel like we might be going through that question again next year if he's in the draw because you would not write him off if he is at least capable of playing and with with the with the surge that the crowd could give him. I mean Serena played her best tennis in her comeback didn't she knowing it was her last event. You know if Nadal knew it was his last Roland Garros can you imagine the force with which he would come out if he's able. So yeah, I I really really hope that's that's in our future. Yeah. Um, well, I hope he, I hope he has some 
pain-free months ahead of him because he's he's clearly just had to live with so much mm. pain out on the practice court and persevering all this time and um you know he he's lost a lot over the years to injury i mean he's been playing 18 19 years on the circuit which is uh, which is absolutely staggering in in itself and he, and he's won all these titles but he's had to put up with a lot and mentally that must have been really tough and and i think i i did sense just a bit of relief really in him having made this decision you know it's um it's it's a difficult thing to have to do everybody has to do it if you play at that level um and this was his time but um i do love that he's leaving the door ajar <laughs> and he's going to give it one last swing and uh and see what he might be able to do um and i really do hope he manages to play davis cup at the end of the year i mean that would be incredible wouldn't it that's something to to think about and and also as you say the olympics next year i mean crikey just imagine if he was able to get out there and be competitive i like to dream (laughs) but whatever happens uh rafael nadal has brought us a lot um and we're going to get to uh to hear a, a little bit more about Rafael Nadal uh, in the company of our good friend uh, Christopher Clary at the end of this show, who has been writing about Nadal for many decades for the New York Times, and he's got a bit of, a bit of news related to him as well. So um, we'll have that for you in a little while. But first of all, let's uh, just concentrate on what's gone on in Rome so far, Matt, because, I mean, it is, you know, had Rafael Nadal not announced all this, we'd have spent very comfortably a good 40 minutes talking about what's gone on in Rome because it has been pretty eventful, including the defeat of Carlos Alcaraz in just his second match. Yes, I'm not sure I feel qualified to talk about Rome because if you'd, if you'd said to me a few days ago that not one of Sinner and Alcaraz and Djokovic and Igor Svantec would have even made it to the semi-finals here, let alone, you know, the final even. I I simply wouldn't have believed you. And, you know, you can you can see our predictions in the newsletter for the fact that that is the case because we all just completely got this tournament wrong. Uh it's been <laughs> it's been really intriguing to see to see it develop and I'm sort of left I'm left wondering David what it all means. That is the question. <laughs> that is the question that we so often come back to. But how much do I need to read into Carlos Alcaraz's defeat? How much does it matter that Novak Djokovic has lost to Holger Rune? How worrying is Igor Swiatek's injury? I suppose time will tell and give us all those answers. But it does feel at the moment like we're a little bit in limbo. We don't. We don't really know what Rome means. But it has been incredibly eventful. Mm, yeah, it, it really has. And actually, I mean, you've been very kind, Matt, saying we've all got it wrong in the predictions because there's no... I've got mine as badly wrong as I got my sending out the email to the intro backers um, <laughs> no, earlier no, on today. No, David, we have literally... You, Catherine and I have all got zero out of eight on our Rome oh. predictions. <laughs> <laughs> What were we doing? We were predicting the quarterfinals onwards. Uh, semi-finals onwards, yeah. Semi-finals onwards for both draws. And we yeah. got all of them wrong. All of them wrong. 
Right. Okay. So if you'd like to know who we're going to be predicting in the future, do sign up to the newsletter, uh, the Tennis Podcast newsletter. There's a link in your show notes and you will get to find out who's not going to win tournaments <laughs> because that will be whoever we have collectively picked. But I mean, some are mine. Madison Keys. Ta- I mean, Taylor, wasn't Taylor Fritz one of mine? Went out in the four and one in his first match. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't know why you're bothering, folks. I really don't. But anyway, I'm delighted you are with us. And, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, Carlos Alcaraz, we'll start with him, beaten um, by a man who, to say I knew very little about, would be the biggest understatement of of the century, I think. But from Hungary, um, Fabian Morizhen, I mean, he was absolutely sensational. And and I really don't say that lightly in this instance. The way he played from start to finish, he was out-dropping Alcaraz, out-drop-shotting him. He was out-hitting him from the baseline, and he showed nerve. And you're thinking, how is this guy ranked in the 130s doing this? Yeah, there was a message from Catherine's brother on the WhatsApp group saying that, Alcaraz is 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 taking a bit of a rustling, and it was it was that feeling of like we had when Lucas Russell beat Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon. Who is this guy, and how is he capable of playing? Who is this guy? Such brilliant tennis, and was this just one big purple patch, or is he actually that good? Um, you know, I think he's twenty three, isn't he? And there's always a reason i suppose why they haven't come through yet but in this match marajan was fantastic as you said his drop shots were amazing way better than carlos alcaraz's who who i would have said had the best drop shot in tennis he was completely fearless he he rushed alcaraz and and, and in that respect it was a little bit similar to the way Sinner rushes Alcaraz and Struff managed to do it in, in Madrid as well. I think maybe there is a little bit of a template there. You've, you, you've got to, yeah, you've got to rush him. It's very hard to do. And Marishan did it fantastically, getting his forehand into play, uh, held his nerve at the end to, to close out the second set tie break. And it was, it was pretty stunning. And yet at the same time, I didn't think Alcaraz would win Rome. Um, I think maybe it might have been, maybe it might have been more damaging, or I would have it would have changed in my mind how I saw him going into Roland Garros if he'd, you know, lost to Djokovic there. I might have thought, oh well, that means Djokovic has kind of got the edge over Alcaraz. But I don't know. It feels like yes, Alcaraz has still got to sort of prove himself at Roland Garros. He didn't play brilliantly there last year. Rome conditions are similar to Roland Garros. He wasn't brilliant this year in Rome. Yeah, he's still got something to prove, but I, it doesn't really make me feel much less confident in Carlos Alcaraz going into Roland Garros. I still think he's in he's in a pretty good place, really. Mm, yeah, um, and and maybe the rest will do him a bit of good. I know, kind of seemed to work against him last year. Uh, it got out of his timing a little bit, but um, I I do think he's still got it all to prove, really, on this particular service in Rome and Roland Garros conditions we don't know yet we don't know whether his game 
completely translates or if he knows exactly how to package it at that tournament just yet so we'll, we'll have to wait and see you're not that concerned about Alcaraz are you concerned about Novak Djokovic's chances based on the fact that he has been defeated by Holger Rune who was fantastic, I should add. I thought he played the most brilliant match. What a player he is. He out-Djokovic'd him in many elements of the match. And it was a pretty grouchy Djokovic at stages of it as well, which is also a bit of a telltale of, as to how much he was uncomfortable out there, I, I thought. Do you do you read much into that in terms of what it all means for Roland Garros, uh, for either one of those two players, or or do you take it in only in isolation? Well, I think Holger Rune is probably going to be in my mix for Roland Garros, I would say. Oh, that is big. Even though he he has it all to prove at, at Grand Slam level, it's just very difficult to ignore how good he is and I think especially on on clay I felt like he he'd had a little bit of a slow start to the season I mean fine nothing to worry about but I was I was waiting for the whole Garuna that we saw in in Paris last year to emerge and I I think he's he's come to life on the clay and he was absolutely brilliant against Novak Djokovic um he's one of those players I think who who says things like, I want to be number one, and really, really means it, and I think really knows what it takes as well. I think he's he's an incredibly hard worker. He's incredibly dedicated to the sport, and I think he has a deep appreciation for how good he needs to be to get to the top. And, and a win against Novak Djokovic just helps him, you know, just, just sets it in his mindset, just gives him belief, just knows that he can do it. Uh, he loves playing big top players. He's won six matches in a row against top five players now. He he thrives in that environment. So it sort of elevated my expectations of Runa, I suppose, at, at Roland Garros. For Djokovic, I really am torn because such a big part of me is saying Grand Slams are different. They're a different beast. We know that. It's five sets. It's... It's the main motivation for Djokovic. He'll be a different guy at Roland Garros. And I, I think I lean on that side. I, th- I don't think I'm too worried. But there were just some elements in Rome where normally that's the tournament where you expect him to start finding his best tennis on the clay. And, and he didn't quite. I'm still not sure he's 100% fit. Uh, there was some suggestion that the elbow was better, but... I also saw him putting his his towel behind his back at the at every change of ends and sort of stretching that out. I thought maybe he he, he might be struggling slightly on in the lower back. He before he played Norrie, he he was in the treatment room right before the match and he was very coy about not going into detail about what that was. Um and he came out really flat against Holger Rune as though as though something was on his mind, as though something was sort of worrying him. He wasn't locked into the match in a way that I would expect from Djokovic at this point in the season, just before a Grand Slam. So all is not quite right, but there's so much evidence that Novak Djokovic can turn it on at a Grand Slam. Yeah, and the additional element that you haven't mentioned there is that he won't have to face Rafael Nadal, who, of course beat him at the tournament last year despite the fact that Djokovic had come in on that great performance in Rome so he, 
And yet you have to remember that the last time he won Roland Garros, he didn't win Rome. He, in fact, he had a, a bit of a difficult time coming into that tournament. And then, and this is something that, I, that I've seen a lot of times with Djokovic. He is the king of peaking and he will sometimes just find it. I mean, I, it's, not a, it's not a question of flicking a switch because if you could do that, you'd flick it all the time. But I mean, with him, he does sometimes just find his game find his best at the perfect time fourth round quarterfinals and then suddenly it's like good luck everybody else um because he's still that guy um it's just that the way Holger Rune played him it felt like he could deal with him I know that wasn't best of five that wasn't a grand slam tournament Rune may not be able to find that at Roland Garros he may I mean he had a couple of niggles himself physically at times over the course of the week maybe he's not going to be the same player he's not he's not the sure thing that Novak Djokovic is because we just don't have the evidence so he's he's 19 but my goodness when he's on when he's on he's he is playing like Novak Djokovic (laughs) which is an astonishing thing to be able to say and and he outdid the guy at his own game and I, I really was bowled over by him. I mean, he's now going to face um, Kasper Ruud. Uh, very quick prediction for that, Matt. They played each other at uh, the French Open last year. Ruud won it. We had the whole uh, escapade at the end of the match where uh, where Ruud sort of shook his head. Ruud had been, basically, I think he thought he was being a brat um, for his behaviour on court and also the manner in which he shook his hand. And then we had the whole... Did he or did he not say "yeah" in Rude's face in the locker room, which um, we believe he probably didn't say. But anyway, um, what do you think is going to happen in the rematch? <laughs> I think Holger Rune is going to get his first win over Kasper Rude, and and it's 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 hard sometimes to go against such a dominant head-to-head. It's it's for love to Kasper Rude, but they've not met since last year's French Open, the infamous. Yar match that you reference. Runa's a much better player now, a year on, I think. Uh, and Rude, this has been a good week for him in Rome. I think he, he needed this week. He needed to, to get some wins and back them up. I still don't think he's playing anywhere close to his best tennis. And I think Runa will have too much, too much game for him. I'd be, mm. I'd be pretty surprised if, if, if Runa doesn't win that. Wow, that's quite big. I, I think I might go Casper Ruud just to ensure that Holger Rune wins. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I mean, I actually think Ruud, he's going to bring it. He's going to bring it full on. And I know he's not playing as well as he was a year ago. Um, but I think there, is, there, there are still doubts about Rune when he goes out on a tennis court. You don't 100% know what you're going to get from the guy. I think he's been the player of the tournament so far. I think he's been the best player in that draw. Um, right from his first win over Artafis, um, I saw his set, I've seen all of his matches and he's just been able to deal with any game style, uh, including Alexei Popperin, who was absolutely blasting the ball at him. And then he beats Djokovic. I mean, come on. This is impressive stuff. Uh, we, we should also mention the uh, the aggro that we had between Novak Djokovic and Cameron Norrie the round before, where if you didn't see it, they had a little bit of an exchange of uh, drop shots and, and so forth at the net. And then a, a, a sort of edged, 
I think it was an edge to backhand up in the air from Djokovic trying to deflect the ball back over and it just sort of popped up for a very easy put away at the net from for Norrie. So Djokovic basically just turned his back really to concede the point and say, yeah, OK, I'm not going to win this. Off I go. And then Norrie plays the smash full pelt into the ankle of Novak Djokovic, who'd got his back turned. Djokovic then turns slowly, dramatically, and for some period of time stared at Cameron Norrie, who gave him the briefest of apologies and turned his back and walked off back to the baseline. And when he got to the baseline, he would have turned around and and seen Novak Djokovic still standing there staring at him. And it must have been... I mean, I, I'm not saying that Cameron Norrie was terrified, but I was <laughs> on his behalf because that was a man who was... You know, Djokovic is very prepared to congratulate, to uh, engage with an opponent and it to be all about sort of fair play when he's not stressed and when he's not angry. But when he does go, my word, he goes. And he was not happy at all with Cam Norrie. Do you think he was within his rights to not be happy, Matt? Well, I thought uh, Tamani Cariol of, of The Guardian put it well, saying he likes body shots and he likes death stares. So no notes, you know. As And I, I, think, I think I agree with that. I think Cameron Norrie was entitled to hit the ball there. And Djokovic was probably pretty entitled to be a bit annoyed about it that Cameron Norrie had hit the ball there. Um, I found the quotes afterwards from Novak Djokovic... Um, interesting, compelling. He, he didn't hold back in press. He was asked about it. And, and he actually made the point that he wasn't just annoyed at, at Norrie for tagging him on the ankle in that moment. He was actually annoyed about Norrie's behaviour generally, you know, saying that he was uh, fist pumping come on in his in his face right from the very first point and that he, he took a medical timeout right at the end of the match just as Novak Djokovic was about to serve for it. And... Djokovic made the point. These are all perfectly legal things. But he said, in, in in his opinion, they're not sort of fair play things. They're not how you treat other players. And I must say, I did sort of think a little bit of insert Daniil Medvedev voice, look at yourself in the mirror. I mean, <laughs> Novak Djokovic has been known to be very pumped up from a start of a match and be fist pumping. He has been known to take medical timeouts at times where people might might doubt him. And, you know, fine. All within the rules. And I just think Norrie was sort of trying to do everything he could, really, to to make up the make up the talent gap, make up the quality gap mm. between between him and Djokovic. He's got to do something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Norrie sort of accidentally got himself involved in a lot of aggro. I think this is this is not this is not intentional. I don't think from from Cameron Norrie. He'd be one of the last players I would I would expect to to be talking about in an aggro section on on the podcast. But I must what, say, you, you don't think he you don't think he deliberately did it then? I think he deliberately did the things to try and disrupt Djokovic, but I don't think he was expecting Djokovic maybe to be so annoyed and so outspoken about it all, oh, I suppose. Interesting. Um, yeah. But, but I must say, from a, from a Djokovic perspective, you know, we've, we've all watched him and observed him closely over the years. 
I felt like his reaction was really encouraging because there's nothing worse than a Novak Djokovic who's who's flat and a bit sterile mm. on the court. If, if Djokovic is getting a little bit triggered by something, if he's getting emotional about something, that's usually for him such a great sign. So I actually yeah. looked at that match and thought, wow, OK, this is now kind of the real Novak Djokovic coming out. That's why I was so stunned by how flat he was against Holgeruna in the opening set. I, I just, I yeah. didn't expect that at all. So maybe that makes me think maybe there is still some, some sort of injury problem or something still on his mind because it felt like that was the moment against Nuri where he was just going to go and he was just going to be locked into this tournament and playing his best tennis. But it didn't happen yeah. against Holgeruna. Uh, good points. So we now have uh, Runer against Rude. We also have Daniel Medvedev, who's got himself into the semi-finals. What what is this about? Everybody doing their their best stuff a week late. I mean, I picked Medvedev to win Madrid. He didn't get even to the semis. I picked Yelena Ostapenko to get to the semis, and she did nothing. And now she's in the semis. Little spoiler for what we're about to talk about. But anyway, I had to get that out of my system. Um, <laughs> So anyway, Medvedev is going to be up against Stefanos Tsitsipas, who's beaten uh, Borna Choric in uh, straight sets uh, this evening, which is a which is a good win for for Tsitsipas, isn't it? I mean, I haven't actually had a chance to see that, but I mean, he he's had a tough time against Borna Choric over the over the uh, the time, and it's been on while we've been chatting. But um, that's a, that's a very good win for him on paper, at least, and it, it's going to be this. These are great semi-finals. Oh. They are dreamy semi-finals from a from agro enthusiasts as we are because, <laughs> because they all have history. It's fantastic, yeah. and yeah, I think that is a big win for Sitsipas. Chorich has kind of had his number game-wise. I think when, when I've watched their matches, they've had a lot of backhand to backhand rallies, and Chorich has come out mm. on top. And he's also, I think, been in Sitsipas's head with a lot of. A lot of tight wins, a lot of comeback wins. So big for Sitsipas yeah. to get the win there. And he is not going to want to lose to Daniil Medvedev on clay. As as improved as Medvedev is on the surface, this is this should still be Sitsipas's territory. So that's that's absolutely fascinating. Mm. Ordinarily, Matt, we would probably be leading with the fact that Iga Svantec has been beaten, not only beaten, but also suffered an injury of her own in her match against Elena Rybakina, she won the first set 6-2, did Sviantek, and then Rybakina came back at her, won the second set on a tie break. It was a really good, compelling second set. And unfortunately, they both sort of avoided one another in terms of when they were playing at their very best tennis, I felt. Uh, I thought Sviantek was dominant in the first set, and then Rybakina really started to find her way. And then we had this situation at... Uh, I think it was right. Was it right at the start of the third set, or was it at the end of the second set, where where Svantec was sliding all over the court, doing the most extraordinary lunges to get to balls, retrievals, and then she pulled up, and there was clearly an issue. At, at, at first, I thought she'd hit, she'd injured her knee, strained her knee, but the way she sort of stopped and stared at it, and and it looked as though she was in tears as well um, during that period of. I imagine there's a, there's panic, there's fear, there's sadness as well as to if 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 it were to be serious. For instance, sometimes players know whether it's serious, don't they? But I think quite often in those sort of situations, they're just scared, they're just shocked, in shock, and 
Um, and there was a, a suggestion by commentators I was listening to that maybe she'd cracked her leg, her knee with the frame of the racket while she was trying to get to the ball and it just stung. But then it just became quite clear it was more than that and there was something wrong. Then she went off for a, a medical timeout and she got the top of her thigh heavily strapped. So it, it became apparent that it wasn't a knee problem at all. It was a, it was a thigh injury. And, and I did actually think in the early parts of the third set that she was sort of going to tr- try and play through it. And, and she, she played another four games. It got to two games all. And then she withdrew. But I th- it looked as though she was going to try and play through it. Now, I, I mean... People went for me on Twitter because I said I didn't see any obvious signs that she was massively struggling. And I suppose what I mean is I, I wasn't expecting her to lose. Maybe I didn't phrase it that well, but sorry, I wasn't expecting her to retire at that point just because she still seemed invested in trying to to find a way. Um, and I don't I don't cast any view on whether she should or shouldn't have done that to my mind she knows how she feels and if she's scared and if she's upset and and it's hurting she should stop you know if if that's how she feels feels in the moment uh, no issue at all with that but that's that's kind of why I reacted um in that way but she's since gone and had a, a scan um and they're doing what she called on twitter diagnostics to try to work out the, the the extent of the problem and she said she'll update people in the next few days but that was a worrying moment wasn't it when somebody like her who's as athletic as she is and seemingly as flexible as she is and and rarely seems to have problems like that when when she pulls up like that it does shake you especially given her status in the game yeah and especially given the proximity to Roland Garros where you know, if she's fit, she's going to be a, a big favourite there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. As you said, she immediately looked pretty worried. Um, shock, pain, I suppose, the combination of the two. Uh, and yet, as you said, her retirement was just quite sudden in that in that third set. Um, her, her movement was certainly compromised, but, but she was still swinging away. But um, absolutely... No point in risking it just before Roland Garros. Um, and it, it, it was a shame because I was really enjoying the match. You know, kind of it was so intriguing. How would Rabatkina's dominance over Svantec this season translate to clay? And initially it looked like Rabatkina's comfort in the matchup had been usurped by Svantec's comfort on the surface. And... Fiontek was brilliant in that first set. There were so many moments where she was lining up a ground stroke and she's got that thing where she can get such late dip on the ball. You don't you don't know when the ball's in midair, whether it's going in or out. And there's a split second where sort of everyone's holding their breath, even Fiontek, and it would just invariably drop in and you would get this huge reaction from Fiontek. And I, I, I loved watching those those sorts of rallies, but... Rebecca was really, really gritty, you know, down a set and a break. She she kept herself in the match, kept herself in the rallies. And we're now at a stage where Igor Sviontek has not been able to put Rebecca away in a in a match this year. It feels to me like the way Rebecca produces her strokes and produces her power causes Sviontek a lot of problems and as the match went on Rebecca found that even on the clay 
So it it does make it fascinating. Fingers crossed, Fiontech is is a hundred percent fit and healthy for Roland Garros. But if they were to meet there, I would have Fiontech, I think, as the favourite. But in the back of my mind, knowing that she hasn't quite been able to finish Rabatkina off this season, I think I think would be significant. And I think Rabatkina yeah. will take a lot of confidence from that second set, the way she she was able to hang with with Fiontech on clay in those conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, we hope for the best for Sviantec and we'll bring you up to date if we have an update when we uh, reconvene on Sunday night after Rome is finished. And who knows, Elena Rebecca might be holding the trophy at the end of uh, this tournament because she's still in it. She's taking on Yelena Ostapenko, who... Uh, as we said, let me down by uh, not producing in Madrid when I predicted her to reach the semi-finals, and now she's absolutely flying. Um, but I do feel somewhat better now that I know that we're all rubbish. Um, <laughs> it has been peak Ostapenko this week in Rome, and, and, and when I say peak Ostapenko, I mean mad <laughs> because <laughs> there was a match against Krejcikova where she lost sixteen points in a row and won the set. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I honestly think she's the only person capable she do that? of doing that. It was <laughs> it was extraordinary. She was not in the match and then suddenly turned it around and then then won twenty eight out of thirty one points in the middle of that match to beat Krejcikova. Wow. She was awesome. Okay, she was awesome in the first set against Paula Belossa. She hit sixteen ground stroke winners and Paula Belossa had hit none in that opening set it was it, it was it was just it was just crazy you know given given her serve given her movement i think you have to have amazing ground strokes and she does when they're sort of calibrated it's it's incredible to watch and she also blitzed uh, daria kasakina six love in the third set she's been playing some unbelievable tennis at times this week and it's her first clay court semi-final since she won Roland Garros in 2017, which is another peak mad Yelena Ostapenko stat. But her against Rabatkina, sign me up because that's that is great ball striking. Yeah, sure is. Look forward to that. Uh, the other semi final is going to be Veronica Kudamatova against uh, Angelina Kalinina who had the most extraordinary win over Beatriz Haddad Meyer a couple of days ago. I mean, they were going for nearly four hours weren't they and and they were they both exited the court in tears it was a really moving match because you know they'd put each other through it and obviously um you know there's the there's there's so much effort physically that goes into those sort of matches but also emotionally even within it even within them Matt because both players looked like they were going to win at various points and then it went the other way yes Exactly. Longest match of the year on the WTA Tour, three hours, 42 minutes. Yeah, both in tears afterwards. I think, you know, it was a, it was a difficult match to play. It was a very difficult match to lose. Uh, the momentum was swinging back and forth. Uh, it looked like Kalinina would win the first set and Hadad Meyer mounted an incredible comeback. And then Hadad Meyer was up in the, in the final set and Kalinina reeled off six straight games to win. She said a sort of fascinating thing that she couldn't feel her body or her legs afterwards. She she never really thought she would have to play a three-hour 
45 minute max she's not she's not really trained for that so it in a way it's sort of shown her what her limits are and that they're they're much higher than than she thought you know i think she'd only played about a two and a half hour match before and now here she was going going an hour more than that and an extraordinary effort from her and um yeah she now plays kudamatova who has quite quietly i think reached back-to-back semi-finals here in in madrid and rome having having not had a great season she's suddenly really found her form and it's you know it's a big opportunity for well for both players yeah and it does, of course, put a, another match um, together between a Russian player and a player from Ukraine, which is uh, something that is going to happen a lot on the on the tennis tour um, and uh, is another situation that we have in the semifinals. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. So that's where we are up to in Rome, in the tennis on court. And just before we we conclude this edition of what is going to be a bit of a bumper edition of the tennis podcast, but um, I'm sure you understand that the, that we've had a lot to get through. And, and um, we very much wanted to include this because um, just a couple of days ago, um, I had a chance to speak to our good friend Christopher Clary from the New York Times. He's been covering tennis for that publication for more than three decades now with the greatest of distinction and well he had some news to share on twitter and uh and it has a rafael Nadal slant so what's happening well david um i guess you know if you're a journalist and you can't have your own scoop there's a problem <laughs> you got to be able to uh keep your own news close to your close to your vest i suppose that's kind of part of the skill set required but I, i'm leaving the uh the new york times staff uh, i've been working for the paper for over 30 years 
the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune, which used to be its international arm, you know, based in Paris. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big leap for me and, and it's been coming for a while, but it, it's still uh, pretty daunting when you actually do it and pretty emotional, I have to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm heading out to become a full-time author and going to do some, I'm going to write my next book on Rafael Nadal called The Warrior. And, uh, and I'm going to be doing some, some work on Substack as well to support that endeavor and have a direct connection with readers. And I'll be posting some new material about tennis. The publication is going to be called Tennis and Beyond. And it's starting right now. So anybody who's listening who likes my work or is interested in tennis, come on over and take a look. But it's definitely uh, exciting times for me, but a little scary, David, a little scary. I guess it's good to be a little scared at this stage in life, right? (laughs) Absolutely right. Well, I can guarantee you've got three subscribers right here from the Tennis Podcast, Matt, Catherine, and myself. Um, And I suspect you'll have many of our listeners as well wanting to follow your work because they've enjoyed your contributions on our show and more specifically reading your work for 30 plus years. I I mean, one of your your tweets, Chris, said that you you think you've done 6,000 stories over the course of of time. Uh, I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of work. Um, Are there there stories within that, that number that will stay with you as you move into this next phase of your career? You know, that's, that is tricky. You know, it really is. I, I just, I'm not sure it's a good thing, David, as I was telling you before to have written 6,000 of anything, but <laughs> that's, that's what I, that's what I've done. And I actually, I actually know that because they have a database you can look at with the New York times and the IHT, which was the acronym for the international Herald Tribune. You can see how many bylines you've had and, I'm past 6,000. So that's, that's just do the math, which was never my strong point, which is why I partly became a sports writer. But um, that's a lot. That's a lot every year. It's a couple hundred a year for 30 plus years. And, and uh, you know, the, so many, how much of the stories stand out as much as I would say is just sort of the experiences and, you know, things like for me being married to a French woman and, and covering Roland Garros all these years, especially the early years when you're doing it for the first times. How, how emotional and, and sort of gratifying that is and cover the 98 world cup in football soccer with the French team and Zidane coming through and winning that and just seeing how it transformed the country for a bit. And, uh, you know, more recently just kind of having a chance through the New York times, uh, calling card to be able to be ahead of the news and get a chance to meet some of these great athletes as they're becoming superstars, so a story recently that really sticks out for me was going to, uh, you know, Alicante and and spending time in Vienna at the academy with Juan, Juan Carlos Ferrero and Carlos Alcaraz in December 2021, and just sort of knowing how good he could be was just so clear, but not knowing how how fast that would happen or how 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 he'd manage that, and then sort of to be there just chatting with him with nobody much around <laughs> at the academy, and he and Ferrero in a back court, and then. You know, a few months later, there he is at the U.S. Open, handling all the pressure, playing brilliantly, and taking the world by storm. So it's those are the moments that are special to have been a little bit ahead of the curve, I think, and um, mm. been very fortunate. You know, part of it's making the right choice. There were times when I've, you know, written stories that sadly haven't turned out that way. I remember spending a lot of time with a young American talent named Cece Bellis um, early in her career, and such a young woman of promise and talent, and 
and drive and, and day-to-day joy, but you know, her body just couldn't take high-level tennis. So was, wasn't able to fulfill that tennis promise. I'm sure she'll fulfill many other things. So, but when you get a chance to go early on and, and that's really the chance I got with Federer and with Nadal as well. And um, part of the reason why I wanted to write these books is because I feel like I've been there for at least a lot of their, almost all their professional journey. And that's, that's a real great seat to be in. Mm. We'll come on to talk about the book that you are going to be writing and, and what else you, you hope to do down the track, but just in terms of your own career, I mean, having spanned 30 years, I guess you've seen a lot of changes, both in terms of the way you are required to work as a journalist generally, and also the way tennis um, allows you to work. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that's a great point. Great question, David. It was funny yesterday. I'm, I'm actually in San Diego right now where, where my parents live and we're spending part of the year here in support of them. And um, I walked out of the house knowing this was going to happen, knowing I was going to be saying goodbye. Uh, and I walked past uh, somebody's front lawn and there was a newspaper printed, wrapped up on the front doorstep, you know, the Sunday New York Times it was. And uh, I just... It was just funny to see it. It almost felt out of context to see that still in this era, you know, with all the as digital as it's all become. And of course, when I started as a journalist, I started in San Diego at the paper here, uh, the Daily, back in the mid '80s, and that was all it was. I, mean, I remember I delivered the paper on a bicycle, tossed it like a American baseball player, not with much accuracy, unfortunately, but uh, onto the front porches of people on my paper route, and. Uh, so I had a direct connection to the business I would enter from that from that way of doing it and uh, made a fair bit of money, you know, for taking girls out on dates and whatever you like in high school from doing that. And uh, when I started in the business, I remember being in, in press rooms and seeing uh, older colleagues dictating their stories. They had a line installed in the press centers or press rows at, at considerable expense with a rotary dial and they would rotary dial a number and call the recording room and they would dictate their game story from the tennis or the soccer or whatever it was. So the, the press room was a sound of cacophonous, often very eloquent voices dictating their stories or very stressed out voices dictating their stories. And I was still writing on something resembling a typewriter back in the day. And, and here we are just on MacBook airs, dictating some of our stories to our computers. And soon enough, unfortunately, AI may be writing some of those stories for us too. Who knows? But it's uh, it's been pretty pretty dizzying at times, the pace of the change from the print era and those newspapers filling up almost every house on every block, physical newspapers, to the internet era, to the social media era, to the AI era that is going to start right about now. So we're adaptable things, adaptable beings as humans, but We've been pushed here lately. Mm. And what what about tennis? What is it like to work in now compared to what it was? Obviously, the the names and the faces have changed, but what about the working techniques? Well, and some things are are, are superior, obviously, with social media and um, you know podcasts like yours and uh, and all kinds of uh, sort of coverage from all different corners of the world. You can see players as they're emerging from wherever they may be. Somebody just posts a little bit of video and of a talented player in any country, and, and you can get a look at them, what they're doing. There are clips of so many more matches. You can watch Tennis Channel here in the U.S. Uh, and watch almost every significant match, uh, either online or on your on your screen. Uh, 
that's all great. Um, as a tennis writer, covering it, definitely trickier for a couple of main reasons. One is that obviously with social media, the athletes themselves have taken command of their own messages, which is fair enough, but tough for people who are you know on the journalistic side who used to be the conduits for news and the conduits for big announcements. Remember Roger Federer calling me up back in the day when he wanted to get the word out that he had had a mononucleosis. Not that he wanted to have an excuse, but he wanted people to understand, you know, what was, what had happened, why his results had dipped and people were, you know, talking about him being in decline and he wanted to at least explain the full story. And, and now he'd put it on Instagram or post a video message. But in, back in the day, he, he called the New York times. He called me. Um, so that sort of news gathering has really changed. Still happens but it's much, much rarer and much, much harder to get really in-depth time face-to-face with the biggest stars in tennis. It's all very micromanaged by their agents. That was always somewhat the case, but when the news media was the main way of reaching the public, those opportunities were, seems to me, a lot more frequent. And when you did get the time, it was a lot more in-depth. Now it's, uh, you know, it's very hard to, and New York Times, because of the name and because of the reach, still has had a lot of chance to sit down with those types of athletes, superstars, and, and get that close-up access. But even so, it's not as in-depth as it used to be and, and not as frequent. And I think, you know, also, even in – I think you and I might have been discussing this in Indian Wells a little bit. Just sort of the – for me, the degeneration of the press conference and the devol- and the devolution of the press conference. A lot of as a tennis writer, what you do is, is you go to press conferences and you're working in there. And I can honestly recall – uh, like when Steffi Graf would win a title or in my early years or Chris Everett. And um, there'd be these sort of long involved uh, back and forth with the press uh, with the, with Everett or Graf or whoever it was. And it would just be, they'd break down the match. It would just be talk about the ins and outs, the tactics. You'd kind of go almost for, in a format through each set, each sort of big moment in the match. And uh, it was really great to sort of get the, the the star's analysis of how that match had proceeded. And now that's almost all gone. You hardly ever do that. It's it's all about sort of um, the peripheral things or the next match. I feel like I'm, I have a major now in writing about uh, the next match instead <laughs> of about the match that just happened because <laughs> so much of that has already taken place on social media and I think in an inferior way. So I miss that part of it. But, you know, that whole line about nostalgia ain't what it used to be. It doesn't satisfy anybody. And it certainly doesn't do me any justice. It sound like I'm an old fogey complaining about the way things are. It's like everything, there's some good and there's some bad, but I, I, I sure do miss those uh, kind of meeting of the minds that those press conferences used to be. And part of the reason they aren't that way anymore is because so many folks with different agendas are all in there trying to do different things. Uh, not just print journalists trying to write a, you know, a thorough newspaper story. It's also because, um, there's much less time than there used to be. It used to be 30, 35 minutes of that. Now it's 10 minutes. And also because, you know, the athletes are going to save their best stuff for their own social media feeds. Why do they need tennis journalists? What, what, why are tennis journalists, why does it matter? If, if, if players can get their messages out there and tournaments can, um, some listeners, some viewers, some readers may think, well, and players may think, well, we don't need them. We don't need journalists why do we need journalists well the point of journalism journalism for me is to, is to try to get as close to the truth as you can and, and no no offense to the players but they're presenting their very best side in a pr mode i mean a 
a player's Twitter account or Instagram account is, is public relations just in a new way. And so that's what it is. And, you know, more power to them. But if that's your sole source of news, I mean, would you uh, would you make your vote and work in politics based only on Barack Obama's Twitter feed? Definitely not. You you need to uh, have a different perspective and, and try to have uh, journalists or at least somebody who's objectively trying to verify things, see if they're true or not, and to bring in the whole picture. So there's that aspect of it. The search for the truth requires somebody objectively trying to search for the truth, I think. Do you ever get there entirely? Maybe not, but at least you're trying. And two, I think it's for the ideas. Um, I mean, you take a look at a day's play at a Grand Slam, you can go 100 different directions, as you know, with what you choose to present. But I think a good journalist is going to have a great idea for how to present that day and or to present that story that came along and, and is going to have you know great people to be able to contact to make it a better story and a, and a better and a better tale worth listening to. So I think, I think that's it. I think it's, it's the search for the truth and it's the quality of the ideas. And obviously I personally love great writing. Um, a lot of tennis players are good at telling you what their news is, but they aren't going to write it in some beautiful fashion. Usually players Tribune does some of that to them channeling their voices. But generally I think it's uh, I love good metaphor, lyrical writing and, and journalists can provide that too. Mm. Well, you don't actually need to tell me any of that, Chris, because I I agree with every word you said. <laughs> but uh, um, it's it is really interesting to get your take on on what's been now. What about what's coming up? You mentioned another book. You mentioned it's Rafael Nadal. The last one was Roger Federer. I suppose it's no great surprise that his old rival is your next um, source of focus. I feel like at this point. Uh, much like it was with Roger when I started the process of researching and getting ready to write, it just felt like there enough had happened and that enough of uh, the main body of work was done, that it was a good moment to, to start that process and to be able to draw some really good definitive conclusions. And I think if you, if you wait too long, I imagine uh, much like I'm not sure when Roger will do this or if he'll do this, I imagine he'll do an autobiography at some point. Nadal's already done one early in his career. I think it was 2009. He hasn't updated it yet, but I'm sure he will. So there's also a window for us, you know, journalists trying to write independently. Um, if you wait too long, I think you you run into that obstacle of of the players, you know, rightfully summing up their own careers that way. And you know, biography in whatever form it is shouldn't be that. You're not trying to you know, give somebody's own version of events. You're trying to look at it from a lot of different viewpoints and, and sum it up. And and um, and there's nothing beats being able to write freely, David. I mean, so much of what we see today is as told to memoirs and stuff that's highly vetted, highly supervised, a lot of a uh, huge amount of subject control from those being written about. You know, the master was totally independent as needed to be for a New York Times writer. And this book with Rafa on, on Rafa, sorry, will be the same. I mean, I'm, not, I'm leaving the New York Times, but I'm, I'm still an independent journalist and this book will be written in that spirit. But I just think he's a source of fascination. Uh, it's been really interesting to see how uh, I think there was ambivalence about Rafa earlier in his career. A lot of that's gone away. He's become a really, really popular figure around the world in much the way that Roger is. And that linkage is very real. Um, and I just, he has such a phenomenal mentality and he's shown such phenomenal consistency mentally over the course of his career that I really want to explore that and look at that. And, um, and, um, I had had the good fortune to follow Roger uh, from a pretty early time in his career and 
had a lot of consistent interaction with him and I haven't had as much with Rafa, but I've had a lot. So I look forward to bringing that to bear and, and, uh, and diving into his story. You mentioned you've had a lot of, a fair amount of interaction with him over the years. And, and I imagine that's going to inform the way that you write this. I, mean, I remember one of the features of the master was you were able to use all the interviews you'd done over the years as the base for it without having that uh, constricting element of his buy-in in real time, I imagine, and therefore the need to give approval. Will is 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 the plan to do a, a similar type of job and 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 if so based on all the the experiences you've had with Rafa what what sort of guy is he what sort of guy did you get to know well david that is a great question and it's almost too great a question i'm not going to get too much into detail because i don't want to give away everything by by any means because i'm still processing some of that stuff all i can say is that you know i think um the structure's not going to be a classic biography uh, i don't want it to be that i i, I think that Nadal's uh, autobiography covered a lot of good ground and did it well. And, and I think um, in the master, I wrote a big thick chapter about the Nadal Federer rivalry and got into a lot of that as well. But I, so I want it to be fun for me and fun for the readers and, and original. So I won't go into how I'm going to do that, but I, I it, w- it won't be a classic biography. And, um, and my experience with Rafa was that was from the very beginning you know, I was lucky because my Spanish was was pretty good in the early years when I was living in Sevilla. I lived in Sevilla for about eight years, and when he when he emerged on the scene, I was just coming to the end of that. So my my Spanish was at whatever peak it ever hit. It was right around that time, <laughs> and it was it never was pretty, but it got the job done. So I got to interview him in Spanish, and most of our interviews through the years have been in Spanish. So you see a different side of Rafa through that, and uh, you know he's a he is a, an authentic gentlemanly character in many ways but he's he's got a lot of uh, a lot to him a lot of meat so and i think honestly more of that comes out in spanish than it does when he's doing english interviews mm. so it's going to be called the warrior it's going to be out in 2024 does that mean when we're not going to hear much from you while you get your head down in order to produce that and therefore how does the Substack come in that you're you're going to start writing for well, and this is for me a learning curve as well. I mean, this is a new a new uh, structure and configuration for me. So I, I'm not entirely sure how it's all going to go. But I, my plan is uh, I'm going to uh, start writing for the Substack regularly right away. Um, hope to do a few things from Roland Garros. This is not going to be a daily uh, thing, nor do I think people really want that at this point. They have plenty of other sources, but I'm, I'm hoping to bring my experience and my perspective and my ideas, as we talked about, to bear there on different topics. A lot of tennis, a few other things too. It's tennis and beyond. I chose that title for that for that reason. I like to be able to tennis be the main thing, but branch out now and then. And then as I get into the manuscript, I mentioned this in the initial post on Substack today that obviously the volume is going to fluctuate when I'm in deep into a manuscript. I'm not going to be you know writing three or four times a week for Substack. It wouldn't be fair to the book project and wouldn't be good for my thought process. So, but I I intend to keep contributing to it on a regular basis in some fashion throughout, and then. Hopefully, you know, going forward in 2024, love to be able to contribute to the times again in some fashion, but Substack will be a, hopefully the main source for people who want to keep up with my writing and definitely want to do a lot around the majors. And, and I have so many ideas I haven't written, so I'm looking forward to executing those in hopefully original ways on, on that platform. 
Well, I, for one, very much look forward to reading them, following them, reading your books, and I will miss you day to day in the New York Times, i got to say, but, but at the same time, it sounds like you're not going to be a stranger, so that's good for me too. Yeah, David, I mean, and I think it, all of us are, it's a, it's a very fluid time, you know, in, in journalism and media and way news is covered, so interesting, I'm sure, for you with the podcast to figure out you know, new ways to to use it and to uh, expand your your reach with it, and I'm I'm kind of going to try to do the same thing in terms of more from a print basis, which is my strength, obviously. Um, try to use my words and my perspective in some original ways, and but I really love the book. The master was was really a joy ride. I feel very fortunate. I know a lot of writers don't feel that way about when the books come out doesn't go the way they had hoped. That thing surpassed my expectations, and and a lot of it has to do with Roger Federer. People are just have a good feeling with him and they want to connect with him and they want to know more about him. And, and I just got lucky having through the New York times and the Herald Tribune had all that time with him. So uh, I think I really would like to have more feelings like that and, and, and give a lot to a project and have it keep on giving. I mean, I've been talking about that book and sharing it with people around the world for a couple of years now. And it's amazing to me that people still want to talk about it, but they do. That's great. Well, we wish you the very best of luck, Chris. Thank you for all the time you've given us over the last uh, few years as well on the Tennis Podcast, and uh, the very best of luck with all of it. Thanks, David. You guys are doing great work. So it's been a pleasure to be part of it in some small way. Sort of bittersweet, isn't it, Matt? Because um, we we love spending time with Chris Clary from the New York Times. It's like, like one of the cool things about being on the tennis circuit in the media room is we get to rub shoulders with the New York Times tennis man, who is just an absolutely great human being but also i don't know i think he's the best of the lot as as a writer i mean we've got loads of great writers and journalists in tennis but to me he is the best and uh and a thoroughly nice fellow as well but he's staying in the sport he's going to have his Substack blog and he's going to be writing a rafael nadal book pretty good timing <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it it certainly is good timing. I, I cannot wait to read that book on, on Rafael Nadal because, you know, his, his book on Federer is the book on Federer, I think. And uh, Chris Chris brings so much of his own reporting to that book and I'm, and I'm sure he will on, on Nadal as well, as as he told you. And, and yeah, I mean, 30 years with, with one organisation and, and leaving with a book contract in your pocket um, is 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 a great run and pretty much as as good as it gets but uh yeah i hope he's hope he's still around in, in in press rooms because he's he's such an important man to have around he's he's been incredibly kind to me as a as a young reporter in that press room i will never forget he did a he did an interview in in pitch black with me during the Davis Cup finals in Madrid in 2019 because I spoke to him there about the about the new tournament and while we were recording the lights just went out in this room that we were in and he just carried on like a like an absolute pro <laughs> sat in the pitch dark with someone that he'd never met before and gave me such such time and such insight and uh I, I've seen him do that with a lot of people as well. Just sort of provide some, provide some background, provide some knowledge. He's 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 just a a, a wise man and a, and a wise tennis voice. And uh, yeah, it, we've been lucky to have him for thirty years in the New York Times. I'm excited to have signed up to his Substack and uh, can't wait to to read his book. Same, same. Okay, Matt. I think we better go to bed. 
because <laughs> <laughs> this really has been a bumper edition of the tennis podcast. We were not expecting this. We were planning. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I to record uh, mid-afternoon, shortly after Rafael Nadal told us he was going to play Roland Garros. Didn't turn out like that. Um, anyway, so we'll, uh, we'll sign off with reminding you of our own mascots, the lovely Maisie for me, Xenia for Catherine, uh, Darwin for Matt, uh, Billie Jean, who is having the loveliest of time with uh, Catherine's brother over the course of uh, these few weeks, uh, is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. We have our top folks and executive producers, Hannah, Jamie and Drew. Thanks, folks. Couldn't do it without you. And we're going to save shout-outs until Catherine's return. That's it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again on Sunday night. Thanks for your company, and we'll speak to you soon. 